All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, we'll be in verses 13 through 15 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I want us to walk away with here this morning. The key truth is this, is that our justification through faith alone precedes our ability to love God and our neighbor in his righteousness. That's very important, that, that final qualifier, because we can say we love God and we can say we do loving things for other people in our own strength, and those things can actually even be helpful in God's common grace. But the key is, is it actually in Christ's likeness? Is it, is it according to and informed by God's righteousness, which can only be granted to us in the finished work of Christ? And it can only be pleasing to him, our behavior, our actions, our loves in the finished work of Christ. And so, let me say it again, our justification through faith alone precedes our ability to love God and our neighbor in his righteousness. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 4, 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we step into this, let's remember that this is this, uh, the section where uh, Paul is helping us to understand the fullness of justification through faith alone. And you remember he had previously let the Jews know that their, their covenants, their, their laws, their being the, the first chosen people of God did not, in fact, grant them God's righteousness, which you would have to know would have been a very decentering thing for them to hear because that had been the thing they had been pleading, right? They had separated themselves and elevated themselves above the Gentile Christians in the Roman church based on these, these descriptors. So they'd been operating, thinking, hey, this is important. This sets us apart. They were actually trying to take all of those things seriously, and so while it ended up being a wicked thing, they were trying to do something they thought was good. They were trying to honor what the Lord had given them. And so Paul, as a master teacher, while he decentered them by introducing the topic in chapters 2 and 3, he now is bringing it back around to show them this is not just my idea. This is actual redemptive history. This is biblical theology. So he uses both Abraham and David earlier in chapter 4 to help illustrate some of what he's talking about. Now he's just talking about Abraham, which is very important. He's going to use Abraham throughout the book of Romans to help them understand who and whose they are. And so if it's true for Abraham, who is our father, what must it be for us as his children? must also be true. And so uh, Paul is doing a masterful job here of helping them to understand. And it's important for us, the church, to do the same thing because we make the same mistakes even though we are not Jews by birth. We tend to take up the things that we think set us apart, different things that we do behaviorally, and try to say, this makes me better than you. Now, we, we don't say it exactly like that because if we did, I think it would actually jar us. We'd actually be better off if we were just completely honest about what we were thinking, but we would never do that. 
We do it in a variety of ways that are subtle and actually more damaging than if you just come out and set it. And so we want to be careful. We want to be able to see so that we can repent of the ways in which we are making the same mistakes. So the question I have for us as we get started this morning is really about love, which is a a really easy topic, is it not? So let me ask you, what is your love based on? Now, let's let's recognize it's different in different circumstances, right? Uh, my, my, My love for my parents is based on something very different than my love for Susan, right? My love for my children is very different than what is based on my love for you as church members and then just my neighbors or other people uh, that I encounter in various circumstances. While we're called to love all those people, we recognize that there's some variance in how that plays out and what it's based on and how that occurs, right? And so what's difficult for us and, and, and really, if we're honest, it's, it's kind of slightly maddening, is that God's love being unconditional and based on nothing we can understand causes us really to struggle with using that same word in reference to us and to other things, right? Like, it, 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 we don't love unconditionally. Not e- I, Parents, I, I felt you just tighten up a little bit. Your love for your children, it is conditional. It varies, And if we were honest, and I've had parents, and I've had to say it myself, and you've said it on some days, and here's how we do it. We try to qualify it to make ourselves look just slightly better. We say, you know what? I love my child, but today, today, I don't really like them a whole lot. Well, that's a variance, right, in some measure. And some of you may be cringing and say, what parent would say that? Well, us bottom dweller parents that really need Jesus. Uh, would say stuff like that. And so, uh, and so we recognize that we can't approximate the unconditionalness of God's love. It would almost, not that God's taking suggestions, but it would almost have been better if he'd used a different word that was unique only to himself, right? But see, there's a problem with that. He uses that word and then applies it to us because we are being formed into which way? Is he being formed into our image? Or are we being formed into his? We're being formed into his. So as we are being formed into his image, our love will become more and more like his, but not to be perfected until Jesus returns and we are glorified. So it will always be an ongoing process, but one we should recognize, though our ways are not his ways, our thoughts are not his thoughts, our loves are not really his loves, They are being imputed and granted to us and transformed along the way in and through the fact that we've been justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. Uh, We are being still formed in the image of Christ through those same things as part of sanctification in which we get to participate. So we recognize that, that we struggle to just understand God's love. And then for those of you who recognize that you have varying loves, what causes your love to vary? Well, again, if we were honest here, it's behavioral, right? It's my love for you varies based on your behavior. If you misbehave, I love you less. And you may say, well, that's wretched. Yeah, that's why we need Jesus. Because otherwise, it would all be commodified exchange, wouldn't it? Like, this is where we have to really fight in sanctification to use the means of grace to try to stay unified and love each other well, right? 
I, I recognize that our varying relationships have varying degrees of commitment and, and covenantality, if you will. I don't even know if that's a word, but you can figure that out. But uh, it's important that we, we recognize that so much of our love is, is actually based in our fallenness. It's behaviorally driven, which is why we can't understand why God wouldn't love us more when we do all this good stuff for him. When we behave so well or for certain stretches or do certain things or don't do certain things. So we have to step into and recognize that one of the fundamental struggles that we have with justification through faith alone is we cannot get our head around its foundation. That God would love us before the foundation of the world. That he would choose broken folks like us to display his glory in this world. And so Paul is, with the entire book of Romans, trying to get them to understand God's love for them and that it's not based on any of the things that they use to try to separate or demarcate themselves from one another. And that's very important for us to keep in view. And so again here, he's stepping in to this issue of legalism. This issue of, can our behavior be the thing that woos God's love for us? And he declares categorically, yet again, no. Listen to what he says. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. Now let's pause here. He's referring back to Genesis 15, 5 and 6, where the promise is given to Abraham. And he's told, hey, in you all the nations will be blessed. And those who, who are, are able to uh, respond to God's love, recognize who and whose they are, they will receive blessing. Those who rebel and continue in their wickedness and refuse justification uh, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they will suffer the weight of their sin. They will suffer the curse. And so, uh, and the reason I can say it that way is because Paul in Galatians 3, 7 through 14, calls the Abrahamic covenant the gospel. So this is the gospel message declared that God so loved the world, not just Jews, not just Gentiles, not just one race, not another race, not one sex over another sex, not those who struggle with certain things over those who struggle with certain other things. It is without distinction. And where we would look more like him in our love is to stop making our love based on so many different distinctions. And so, here he is invoking uh, the, the, the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 15, and he goes on to say, it did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. Now, how can he say that? Well, the law of Sinai isn't given for several hundred years after this. He may say, eh, but isn't the covenant kind of a law unto itself? Yeah, there's some, there's some aspects of it. There was some obedience that Abram was supposed to keep, you remember, right? That he was supposed to trust God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was to await God's provision of a covenant child. Do you remember what he did? He and Sarah, they didn't wait. Well, they did for a little bit. Let's give them some credit. They gave it a good decade. 
which is slightly fair in all things considered. When you're 80, five or six, right, you know, so clock's ticking. I can't help but think of Marissa Tomei when she's like, my biological clock is ticking from, anyway, my cousin Vinny. Reference that is losing its steam, as I say it, <laughs> culturally. A whole group of people have no idea what I just said. It's all right. Uh, <laughs> so they are, they long to be part of God's covenant. Right? They, they, they actually want to see it come to fruition. So, you remember in Genesis 16, they take matters into their own hands. They, if you want to say a covenant is a law unto itself, has legal aspects to it, right? Obediences. They break that covenant as thoroughly as you can possibly break it. They have a child with Hagar, one of the servants, and then proceed, unbeknownst, they don't know that that's not the covenant child, Ishmael, to cast him into the wilderness to die. So what if Ishmael was, in fact, God's covenant provision? Now you remember how God responds, he kills them all. Wait, That's not how it goes. If you were to read Genesis 17, he shows up and he says some really interesting things that we don't have time to go into. It's a whole separate sermon. But he says to Abram, he says, Abram, I am your shield and defender. What? A covenant lawbreaker? The Lord? What kind of love is this? And then he says, walk before me and be blameless. Based on what? What did Abram do to make himself blameless in that moment? If you remember, nothing. What he does do is interesting. He actually doesn't walk before God. Yet again, a disobedience, if you want to count it as such. He surrenders, falls down, and worships. And what does the Lord do? You remember, he kills him. Oh, wait, that's not, that's not the story. He changes his name and recommits the covenant and declares, you can't break my love. You can't break this covenant. What I have started, I will finish. Doesn't that drive us crazy? In all the wrong ways, Because we have no control over it. We don't get to decide how it plays out. We don't get to decide to whom he declares such things. We don't get to decide based on what we do, anything, hardly at all, when it comes to God's love. And so he goes on to make sure that we understand. He says, For it is the adherents of, if it was the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. How can he say that? Well, remember from Romans 3, 9 through 18, that tapestry of scriptures that Paul put together to show us how thoroughly broken we are from head to foot and everything in between. So if it was up to someone, essentially what he's saying here, is if it was up to some one of you to adhere to the law so as to fulfill it, based on what Romans 3, 9 through 18 says, that is an impossibility. Cannot, could not, can never happen. With the exception of one. 
Christ himself was able to be an adherent of the law such that we could receive both faith and promise as fulfilled. Remember, all of the promises of God are what in Christ? Two things, yes and amen. That means they are received, acknowledged, engaged with, and completed in full. Praise be to God that it is not up to us as adherents of the law, because otherwise, any and every good thing we could have, you can't. You're dead in the water. Now, I want to get to some way in which I think that we do this, and it's a topic we have to talk about. Um, when I say it, some of you parents are going to be really concerned about where I'm going next. So let me put you at ease. I'm not going to be graphic. I'm not going to speak in any way that is, is, is not age appropriate. Yes, your, your children may have some questions, and to that I would say, good, we need to be having these conversations. But before I get to the topic while your mind is spinning... The issue is, if we had to boil it down, is that we have uh, conflated or uh, chosen behavior over character. We have looked at uh, what, what you do as opposed to who you are. Now, is that a false dichotomy? Am I suggesting that if you have good character, that your behavior wouldn't follow? Well, what is the biggest indicator of good behavior? I mean, good character. Well, ultimately, your behavior would in some way match up to that, and there'd be uh, some consistency. And so I'm not suggesting that our behavior doesn't matter. What I am suggesting or declaring from Scripture is that it's not primary. But note how we, and this is something you have to think about for yourself, what are the areas in your own life where you are elevating behavior and ignoring character? Failing to recognize the only way for character to be sustainable, I'm sorry, behavior to be sustainable, is for your character to be transformed into the image of Christ. Diane Langberg, one of the smartest folks going on the issue of abuse in the church and in the world, has a great quote from her, I think it's her most recent book called Redeeming Power, uh, looking at authority and abuse in the church. She says, Character has supremacy in the kingdom of God. It is character that bears fruit in this world, and that fruit is full of the fragrance of Christ, and listen at this qualifier, in all of his humility. That's really important. You may be thinking, why isn't this quote in my bulletin? Well, I read it after we had done the sermon on Thursday. But it's a great, she really captures that it is truly character that God wants us to display his righteousness, and that is imputed through justification before you do anything that could in any way woo God or have his love be directed toward you, right? And that's really important. And we've gotten that out of phase in some areas, and here is what you've been waiting for. I want to talk about sexuality for a moment. And a way in which the church thinks about it that is behaviorally driven and not character driven. Many of you may be familiar with something called purity culture, which we are still, we haven't gotten over, we haven't vanquished, we haven't purged it from our veins. It is still very much a part of who we are. And let me illustrate. 
We place an insane burden on the young women of our church in this way. We tell them that they have something that is unique from all of their other aspects and all of their other uh, humanity and character. They have this thing that must remain pure. And if it's not, once it is lost, it cannot be regained, and therefore you are now in a different category within the church. You may say, wait, where do we say this? Oh, let a child get pregnant at a Christian school. What do we do with her? Hawthorne uh, dealt with this a long time ago. We've been doing this for a while. We are quick to place the scarlet letter, are we not? And so, think about this for a second. What is wrong theologically with that thinking from the jump? If theology holds, uh, based on who we are from the start, who are we? We are fallen, impure. How much? How much? Totally. So where in the world did we think it was a wise idea to come up with this space that we say, but this, this thing, your sexuality, it is pure. Are you kidding me? How in the world would a thoroughly fallen person even begin to understand what that means? And how to manage that insane responsibility in and of themselves without a transformation of character, without a transformation in Christ himself, so as to be able to understand. Let me make very clear here that I am not ignorant of what happens to us when we engage both male and female in our sexuality in a variety of ways. We know that from neuroscience, it radically transforms our brains. It just does. Whether you engage, and it does it in different ways based on the way you engage the topic. So, should we take it seriously as the church and as God's people? Yes. The stakes are insanely high. In fact, Scripture sets it apart in a way that I think we've twisted. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and sexual sin it, it uniquely defiles that temple. For God, does it change God? Let's do, let's do the theology. Does it change God in any way, shape, or form? No. Does it limit the reach of his arm or his love? No. Does it affect our understanding of his reach, his love? Yes. Does it affect our understanding of who and whose we are and where we belong? Yes. And so we, the church, in this area, say behavior matters more than character. Before that is ever really wise to do. It's never wise, by the way. Now, we do it to the men on the other side, interestingly. So think about the miscommunication. We say to the women, you, you all are the weaker vessel. However, you must become the most tensile, strong thing in the entire universe on this topic because the men are lecherous and grotesque when it comes to sexuality. Oh, and by the way, you should probably marry one. Right? 
Now think about that for a second. Think about that message. And then we say to the men, we, we hit them with a different purity. We don't so much tell them about their active sexuality. We just kind of almost go, look, what, whatever, do the best you can. Just, but whatever you do, don't let your eyes get in trouble. Don't you dare, you lecherous wretch, get online and find yourself in some back alley. And if you do, we will judge you until the day you die. We will look down upon you and think less of you. Now, think of this for just a moment. If the statistics hold, that means, and don't look around, 60 to 80 plus percent of the men in this room have violated that purity and maybe have done so not that long ago. And so what are we telling them they must do with their struggle? If I am going to judge you, and rightly so, it is sin. Does it have consequences? Yes. So please, women of the church, men of the church, please don't hear me say that you can sin so that grace may abound. Paul's going to take that to task in chapter 6. No, you are baptized. There are ways in which this must change. But if what you're going to do is seek to change it behaviorally without transforming your character into the image of Christ, you will never get there. And if you do, you may wind up arrogant, which is worse. I can't tell you how many accountability groups, let me pause, accountability groups are not bad, okay, in and of themselves. So please don't hear, Cameron hates accountability groups, he hates all kind of stuff from the 90s. Uh, no. But what I found, and maybe this was, I was bad at it, and y'all are good at it, so let's just start there. I'll admit, maybe I got it wrong, but from everybody I've talked to that was part of an accountability group, it usually went this way. The discussion was all behavioral. It was all sin management, right? Not one time did anybody bring up character or worship or the true condition of that man's heart. Or women, by the way, because the statistics are rising in that arena as well. And so it dawned on me after sitting through these a few times going, this ain't working. This is terrible. I started coming in and asking about worship. I started coming in and asking about means of grace. And guess what those accountability groups did? They disintegrated pretty quickly because guys didn't want to talk about that. And what I feared is that we had it out of phase. And that's been some 15 years ago that began to dawn on me. And we still do. Because think, uh, within the context of the church, people are afraid to tell what they're struggling with. And even in our marriages, wives, husbands, we tend to prosecute our spouses based on what they have done in their bodies, what they have done with their sexuality behaviorally. And we are not forming the character of Christ, which is the balm of Gilead, the transformation for any and all of those things. Not your anger, and more importantly, not your love is going to transform any of this. And so we, the church, have got to figure out how to have conversations with our young men and women to start. Uh, what does it look like for your sexuality, which is, by the way, not pure? Does it, does it matter what you haven't acted on yet? It is, by theology, impure already. 
What's interesting about this to me, side note, what other sin do we talk about in terms of purity? And why do we pick that one? That's a whole nother deal. But interestingly, we don't help form character around that concept. We instead say this is dangerous and, 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 and fraught and horrible, well, mostly, and, and, and you need to, you need to just, just stay away. Just don't. Instead of, no, how will you manage it? Because you, you can't stay away. Part of it is what you were designed for in the best sense of that word. Do remember that the initial covenant is, uh, has a sexual component from the start over which we are to have dominion. And so, that's one place we must start with the young men and women of our church. We also, for those who are uh, uh, not young men and women anymore and have probably made some mistakes along the way, we've got to help them figure out how to see character as critical to struggle and not just behavior. Is it a good idea not to do many of the things I'm implying? Yep. But what's the likelihood you're going to do it in your own strength? Double zero. Even in your own mind. For those of us who, who, who maybe, there's all kind of ways in which we fail. It's not just what we do, it's what we withhold. It's how we treat each other in the midst of it. And what would it look like for us as a church to be able to love well those who have so mistakenly and, been, and, and, and just messed this all kinds of ways such that they don't feel they could ever be loved by anyone? And if anyone were to even find out my history, they won't love or like me, and I won't be welcome here. Does that look like Jesus? Does that look like Jesus as he dealt with the Samaritan woman at the well who had some issues with purity? Or the woman in John 8 who had some issues with purity? Or even any of the people he dealt with? David, Solomon had some real purity issues. I don't know if you guys know that or not. Uh, he took David's issue in, in you know, 300-fold. And so here is an area that we need to think about ways in which we are uh, promoting a legalistic idea through behavior over character. That is destroying the church. Now, the culture has also taken this up. They call purity acting on any and every want, need, or thought, Right? So there's a way in which this is important for how we will engage the culture as well. Because too often we engage the culture of this, how sexuality is playing itself out in the culture, by recoiling from it and saying that is the most impure thing in all of the universe. Which is the adverse of the purity culture. And instead of being able to step in and say, you clearly are hurting and have some things twisted. What is going on? How can I love you and walk alongside you in the midst of this struggle? In the midst of the things that you've done that become so definitive. They do, don't they? Nothing changes us like how we engage our sexuality. That's why it is so important that we, the church, not leave it to behavior. Because we know behavior can't save it for us. 
Now, I'm sure you may have a lot of questions, and there's a lot of things I can't say. And a lot of things that shouldn't be said in a sermon with children. Hey, Bennett, I know you don't quite understand what I'm saying yet, and that's good. But, but we need to wrestle with this. And so if you have questions, if you want to know and try to work through and think through what does this look like for you or other circumstances, let's do the, the hard work of theological discipleship and wrestle with it. Let's talk. And understand what does it look What does it look like to become more Christ-like in these areas as parents, as husbands and wives, as single people, as sexually broken, impure people that was true from the start before you acted on those things? Because if it is, I could say it a different way, for if it is the adherence adherence of purity sexuality who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. And so we need to wrestle with this as the church because we have gotten it so wrong. Consider the whole purity discussion if someone is abused. They didn't act on it, it was taken from them. Where's redemption for them? Think of all that rolls out and, 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 and is so destructive in that conversation if we elevate something higher than it should have ever been elevated or in ways that it should have never been elevated. We've elevated it wrongly. It should be elevated, but not in the way that we have. And so here's my question. How are you trying to justify God's love for you? And how are you trying to do that as far as others are concerned? Here's what I mean. What are the ways in which you're trying to use your behavior instead of your character to get God to elevate you? And how are you maybe diminishing others or holding others to some sort of standard they can't keep, which looks nothing like God? It is okay for us to to wrestle with that, figure that out, be honest, because we can only repent and bear fruits in keeping with repentance if we know, if it's exposed in us. And then I think this is an even better Lord's Day Sabbath question. Are you able to rest in God's love for you through your justification by faith alone, even when, not if, but when? Notice the difference. I didn't say if, I said when. Even when you fail to live up to whatever standard you have created or compare yourself to, or someone else is using to compare you. That tells us a lot. That's just another way of saying which way do you run when you sin or are sinned against. If you find yourself unable to rest in the finish, and and listen, I understand some of you are kind of nodding up and wondering like, well, this is going to be just a liberty to sin. No, this is actually liberty to worship, to, to set you free to know what it means to be justified to set you free to live out the truth and beauty of your baptism and who and whose you really are. And it ought to transform your character such that your behavior begins to change in a way that's actually sustainable and loving and truly honoring to the Lord our God. And so, what a gift that on a day where that question hangs in the air, that we could have our faith nourished by the Lord's table, 
that we could come and again be reminded of what Christ has done for us and how he continues to intercede for us and how he has promised to return to make all things new. Praise God that as we wrestle with the ways in which we elevate behavior over character, Christ calls us to take a break from that discussion for a bit and just be reminded of what he has done for us and applied to us. That in his body given for us, we have the fullness of our shame, guilt, and God's wrath satisfied. That's one of the ways I think that we have so dishonored the issue of sexuality is we don't cast it as far as the east is from the west. We continue to bring it up in various ways, either ourselves or people around us or the church. So praise be to God that that calls us to rest from the weight of all that. And then even more, that shapes our character. Even more, our behavior is shaped by the resurrection of Christ who allows us to walk in true newness of life, to live out what it is that the Lord has for us, the good things the Lord has for us. So remember that last night that he was with the disciples before his crucifixion, and he wanted so desperately for them to know God loved them. And he wanted something that the church could continue and maintain, so he took something he knew we would always want and have, bread. Except for you keto people who've ruined it. I'm kidding. But he took bread because he knew you're always going to be together for a meal, and a meal is something unique, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, and it is given for you to sustain you, to remind you that you have been forgiven. And then he took the cup as part of that meal. He raised it up. He said, this, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins so that you could walk in newness of life, so that your impurity, which was from the start and then acted on subsequently thereafter, would not have the final say. And so as you receive, if you would, hold, we'll all take together as family, but as you have time to meditate, pray and ask the Lord how this table can help nourish you in shaping character, which then drives behavior and not the other way around. And so, uh, we will have the, from the Calton's row, you guys will come forward to me. The rest of you, which would be Colin and Haley, the Okies, uh, the Yandles, y'all will go to Jonathan in the back. If you just want the, the MRE, one hand. If you want the bread and the juice cup, two hands. All right, let me pray. And after I pray, come. Father, thank you. You have so graciously provided a visible, tangible declaration of your love for us that helps us to remember the work of Christ, his death, his resurrection, his seatedness at your right hand and intercession for us, his coming again to make all things new. May you nourish our faith and help shape our character by your righteousness, not our behavior that our character shaped by your righteousness would result in behaviors that love you and love our neighbors in ways that have eternal implications and eternal fruit. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.